If you'd open your Bible with me this morning to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, last week we finished up chapter 11. And really, to catch the context, we should read the entire chapter 11 again, but uh, given the time, I'm not going to do that. <clears throat> just to remind you, in, ha- in chapter 11, the writer, uh, remember, just paraded before us uh, all these old saints, uh, Enoch and Abel and Noah and uh, Abraham and, and Sarah and the patriarchs and all these others who lived by faith. And then in chapter 12, he's going to begin, therefore... In light of all the testimony of all these witnesses, uh, let us run with endurance. And so we're looking at the first two verses this morning of chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, let's give our attention to the Word of God. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's just ask the Lord's blessing as we come to the word this morning. God in heaven, we're here to be taught things of God, spiritual things, things that we cannot understand unless your Holy Spirit come and help. And we trust, Lord, that it is your good pleasure to give that good gift to your children. And so now, Lord, I pray that this word would ring true and sound deep in our heart, that, Lord, we could take these things to heart and to be changed and transformed as you are leading us along this pilgrim journey. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of my message this morning uh, is The Realities of the Christian Life. Realities of the Christian Life. Have you ever uh, gone uh, to the doctor with some uh, nagging pain or some concerning symptom, and so you made the appointment, and you went in with some trepidation, quite sure that something was wrong, possibly something was seriously wrong, Uh, but uh, after meeting with the doctor, you found out that uh, the pain or the symptom that you have is normal. Have you ever maybe been to the doctor, and they said, well, you're getting old, and that's the problem. Uh, I was uh, at the doctor just this past winter. I um, I was just feeling so incredibly tired. I had some some pain in my neck, and and it just didn't seem right. And so I thought, you know, a couple years ago I had pneumonia. It, it could easily be pneumonia coming back, or or leukemia, things like that. And so and so I went to the doctor, and and um, and uh, she said, uh, well, you know, how you been doing? I said, well, you know, about oh, two weeks ago I had a little bout with the flu, no big deal, and. And she says, well, that could, yeah, that, that's exactly what's going on. It's going to take you about three weeks to recover. That's what we're seeing. And uh, this is normal. So I felt a little foolish, um, a little, um, that was a hundred bucks shot. And then, um, <laughs> but also encouraged. That's just normal. And um, so uh, you just need to drink a lot of fluids and get your rest and, and uh, go home. Well, I'm sure that you've had a similar experience. Sometimes the diagnosis of normal, uh, even though it doesn't relieve the problem, at least it puts, uh, gives you the right context. You're oriented to that problem in, in the right way. This is just now normal. You see, the same is true for the Christian life. 
We can easily assume that when things are hard, uh, when there are trials that we, we hadn't counted on, when, we, when we're in pain or feeling some great weakness, we can assume that something's wrong. Uh, there's, there's something that needs to be fixed. Someone needs to be able to make this better. Or maybe I just took a wrong turn and need to get back on the right path, the path of God's blessing, God's best plan for my life. Because this can't be God's plan. This can't be God's purpose. It's, it's far too painful. Well, the, the, the truth is, you see, that uh, pain and heartache and difficulty is normal. And that's what the early church needs to hear. They, are, uh, they must have felt like something had gone wrong. These are Jewish Christians who had come to faith in the Jewish Messiah. And they were, had been taught since children that when the Messiah comes, it's going to be fantastic. The Messiah is going to restore Israel to its place of prominence. The Messiah is going to lead uh, his people in triumphant procession. He is going to bring the shalom, the peace of God. We need to pray for the Messiah. And so it was with great joy and anticipation that these, believe, these early Christians heard the news of the Messiah and came to believe that Jesus of Nazareth was precisely the one that God had promised all through the Old Testament scriptures. And yet the life that they're living is not messianic. Their homes are being plundered. They are being persecuted. They have been um, cast off by their own families. There is very little shalom about any of it. And they're having second thoughts. There may, some of them wondering maybe, uh, we, maybe we came to believe wrongly or maybe we should just hold our faith in a different way. We'll believe in Jesus, but we're going to integrate back into the Jewish community so that we can at least have um, our family and we can have a life. Well, the writer this morning, is, is, uh, as he's been doing through the whole book, is writing to remind them that this is a pilgrimage. Uh, Moses led the uh, people of God, ancient Israel, he led them out of the bondage of Egypt through the miraculous event of the Red Sea, but then they were in the wilderness, and they were there for quite a while, and it was not easy, and it was not fun, and we've been called to a, a similar pilgrimage. And so the writer this morning, in these two verses, just four things that I'd like to, for us to consider, things that are held before us, realities of the Christian life, the first being there's a race to run, the second, there's sin to set aside, third, there's a cloud of witnesses to listen to, and finally, there's a Savior to look to, a Jesus to look to, and those are the things that we'll be focusing on this morning First, then, a race to run. Let us run the race before us. It's the central command uh, of the text. Uh, let us. And if you notice when we, when we were reading all the us language, since we are surrounded, let us lay aside and let us run the race set before us. Uh, he's talking to you. The writer's talking to the early church, and by the Holy Spirit, he's talking to you this morning. This is about your life and, and your journey, your pilgrimage. We're all doing this together today. Let us run the race before us. There is, uh, the Christian life is a pilgrimage. I've said that a thousand times before. It's just something that we so easily forget. We're not home yet. We're on our way to that better country. 
a city with foundations. And you see, the reason we have to keep telling ourselves that is because um, we could be tempted, particularly as affluent American Christians, to think that this is what it's supposed to be about. That this life is the life that Jesus um, has intended to give us on the cross. And that uh, we ought to expect as American Christians that there's, there are solutions to problems. There's fixes. There's an app for that. We're, we're geared by the advertising that we listen to. There, there, there ought to be some way to live a life that is, for the most part, pain-free. You see, one of the devil's most effective schemes in his warfare against the people of God, and make no mistake, he is at war with you. One of his most effective schemes is to make you assume or forget, make you assume that this life is what, it is, is what it's about, to forget that this is a pilgrimage. And so he works with all of his strength to get us to focus on the here and now and not think about what is yet to come, not to think about the true nature of pilgrim status. Because you see, that mindset, if you, if you recognize there's a race to run, it will impact the way you do life. The writer here seems to be uh, calling to their mind the, uh, a scene of an Olympic race, and you have the, the, uh, the uh, arena there, and you have the, the athlete down on the field about to run. Well, in an Olympic runner... He doesn't do running sort of uh, as a hobby on the side. It is the one constraining reality of his life. It dictates everything he does. The amount of sleep he gets, uh, what he eats, what he does with his body. Everything is, is brought in line with this fact. He's an Olympic runner. He's running a race. Now, now let me just ask you honestly. In this past week, have there been any thoughts in your mind about the fact that you're running a race? So have you made any decisions in this past week, either with your time, uh, with your money, in your relationships, conversations that maybe you're going to have or not have, where you consciously thought to yourself, I am in a race moving towards an eternal city. And that, and that needs to define the way I do my life here that God has given to me. That's what the, runner, that the, the writer here is striving to remind us. Uh, it's, there's a race to run. It's a race that has been set before us by the hand of God himself. And therefore, since we're running a race, and it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. Well, the writer says like, we, we need to run with endurance. You see, when you recognize that, that it's a long race you're, you're, you're running, it gives you a functioning category for weakness and pain and misery and heartache, things that are hard, things that maybe you wouldn't have expected if this was home. But if you're in a race, well, blisters are common. That's normal in a race. Shin splints are normal for runners. There's a lot less grumbling and complaining or confusion when we remember what we're doing. But also, secondly, it gives us compelling reason. If we have this in our mind, that we're, we're, we're actually running a race, this isn't home, it'll give us a compelling reason to battle with sin and to live a certain lifestyle. 
So the writer says, let's put aside uh, the things that weigh us down and the sin that so easily entangles. Uh, you see, that if, you, if you recognize that you're, you're here and you're headed there, it's going to change the way you think about obedience. That obedience is not just trying to be good. Obedience is not a, a matter of keeping random rules. But obedience is a part of helping you run this race that God has called you to run. If you were, um, if they turned on the television, or if, let me just say, maybe you're, maybe you're a coach for an Olympic runner, and it's the day of the big race, and you're the coach, and you, you meet your, your guy, you, you come maybe a little late, and there he is at the starting line, and um, he's got a, a, a nice winter parka on and some snow boots, and he's, and he's lugging a 50-pound suitcase. What would your counsel be as a coach? I think you'd say, you need to get rid of that stuff. And if he said to you, well, why? I like this stuff. These are all my favorite things, and I love this coat, and I just bought these boots. You say, but young man, you're running a race. You can't run a marathon with a 50-pound suitcase. It's, it's not possible. You see, and, and the writer is saying to us, there are things that we just, we need to recognize are going to hinder you from running this race. And we need, to rem- we need to fight them, get rid of them, put them aside, put aside every weight. And that could be a good thing or a bad thing. In, in Luke chapter uh, 21, 34, Jesus says, watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness, bad things, and the cares of this life, good things. Cares of health and cares of property, possessions, employment, family, all good things. But see that the cares of this life, Jesus says in in Mark Remember the parable of the sower that Jesus says the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth and desire for things that that makes the the, the seed unfruitful. So we just we have to come to our senses in a sense. We just assume that the cares of this world that, that that's a, that's just a normal part of living in this world and and so we're very busy about them. But but the cares of this world Jesus says could could weigh you down and keep you from running the race. I think we have to ask ourselves fundamentally as you live your life, what bottom level, right, fundamentally, foundationally, what are you doing? What are you about? Are you, are you actually just a consumer gathering material things? Are you just a, a, a person sort of making your way through life, gathering experiences, entertainments, pleasures? fundamentally what are you about and and if the answer to that fundamentally is that that I'm just about living sort of the mid, the west michigan american dream well I don't think you understand who you are as a christian I don't, I don't think you I don't think you understood the call the call was to a race and that doesn't mean that, that the gifts of god cannot be enjoyed and appreciated and and stewarded to his glory of course they can it just means that that's not what we're 
about, and so we're learning to set aside even cares that weigh us down so that we can run this race. And then the sin that so easily entangles. The the ESV, for some reason, left out the, the particle, it's in the Greek, and I think uh, that it's meaningful because I don't think the writer has a general idea of sin in mind. I think he's got a specific sin in mind. Uh, What would that specific sin be? Well, I've always sort of assumed, maybe you have too, that it's personal besetting sins. So, the sin that so easily entangles. What is the sin that so easily entangles you? And it could be a whole host of things. And while that's, that certainly applies, I don't think it's what he means. The, the, the sin that weighs us down, the sin, is the sin beneath your besetting sin. And the sin beneath your besetting sin is unbelief. And that's uh, the reason I say this, because it's what he's been talking about in the entire book. It is the sin that kept Israel out of the promised land, Hebrews 3.19. We see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And he's mentioned it numerous times. I could go through and and just show you in various places. In in chapter 10.35, don't throw away your confidence. He wants us to believe. That's the point of Hebrews chapter 11. The refrain over and over is that this race is run by faith, and the sin that so easily entangles then is unbelief, lack of faith, living by what we see, living by what we think, by what we can intuit and, and what we can plan. You see, it's, it's unbelief, isn't it true, that robs you of your confidence in Christ? It's unbelief that steals your joy in being a child of God, that drains your strength. It's it's unbelief. Have you ever had a moment of deep-rooted, experiential faith in God and at the same time felt hopeless and lost and tired? I haven't. I I don't think those things go together. Not experiential. I'm not saying if if you're feeling lost, you don't have faith. I'm just saying... Uh, faith is the thing that, that builds us, gives us strength, gives us joy, gives us endurance. So, so if unbelief is the besetting, is the sin that easily entangles us and, and that weighs us down, then how do you fight the sin of unbelief? What group do you go for that? Well, two things in the text. Listen to the cloud of witnesses and look to Jesus. Listen to the cloud of witnesses and look to Jesus. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, the writer wants us to see them, right? We're in the Olympic arena, and the stands are full of this great company of the saints. The question is, what are they doing there? And there's confusion on this, in part because the Greek word here, martyr, can mean either to witness in the sense of being a spectator, seeing something, or to witness in the sense of testifying to something, like in a court of law, can mean both things. And the common, uh, what I see often, particularly today, I suppose, is the idea that this great cloud of witnesses are there spectating, they're watching and cheering for you. Now, that might be true. Scripture just doesn't really give us much on that. But I don't think it's what this text uh, means or what the writer means here. I think that the point is specifically that they are testifying. 
They're talking to us about the goodness of God. They're giving their testimony about the faithfulness of God. Uh, you find back in, if you have your Bible, look at just chapter, verse 4 of chapter 11. So my point is that these, this cloud of witnesses, they're not spectating, they're speaking. You see that in, in chapter 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And then note this, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. He's talking. And the writer, in fact, will later on in verse 13 say, these all died. The whole cloud, the whole crowd of witnesses, have, they all died, and yet they are all still speaking. And the question you'd want to ask is, well, how do they do that? How does that work? And the answer is, they are speaking through the pages of Scripture. Every story that the, uh, every person that the writer references in chapter 11, he's just pulled right from the pages of Scripture. There are other uh, martyrs he could have appealed to. James has been put to death already. Stephen has been put to death already. There would, be, there would be people uh, in this um, community that, that they would recognize and know, and he could talk about them. He doesn't talk about any of them, of those folks. Every reference is to Old Testament Scripture. Why? It's because in the Scripture, they're talking to us. These are divinely recorded stories for our benefit. Um, and so these are, the, these are the people that he has gathered together as this great crowd, and they talk to us. In the Bible, when, we open your, when you open your scripture and you read the story of, of Abraham, Abraham's talking to you. When you read the story of, of, of David and Goliath and, and uh, <clears throat> Abel, pick your, pick your person there in, in Hebrews chapter 11. Every story comes from a scripture. And the great encouragement then of this cloud of witnesses is not that they're cheering for you, but they're talking to you. They're talking to you. They're telling you about God. I think we can recognize the benefit of that. If, if I'm about to go uh, into a life-threatening surgery, I'm not going to be greatly encouraged uh, it, by someone who says, well, pastor, we'll be out here cheering for you. Great. Cheer away. What I'd like you to do, see, what the person I'm looking for is the man who's had the surgery before with the very same doctor, and that man comes and sits down and says, let me tell you about the doctor. Let me tell you about how experienced he is. Let me tell you about how good he is. Let me tell you about how kind he is and, and, and how successful the surgeries have been in the past. That's going to be encouraging to me. And that's exactly what's happening here in this cloud of witnesses. They are talking to us about God. God in Christ for us. They're telling us about the sovereignty of God, the goodness of God, the fact that he's all wise and all knowing. He knows what he's about. He's all powerful. Tell me again the story about how God rescued the Israelites out of the bondage of mighty Egypt and brought them miraculously through the Red Sea. Tell me that story because I need to know today that, that God is faithful to his promise. Tell me about his kindness in using stammering Moses who couldn't talk very well and doubting Gideon 
and fearful Barak and, and lusting Samson to accomplish his purposes. Tell me again about the God who uses normal, weak, fallen people like me to do his good will. That's, that's the God I need to hear about. Tell me these stories about Daniel in the lion's den and tell me again about the three friends in the furnace that God did not leave them but, but protected them and provided for them and kept them. Aren't those the stories that encourage us? As these saints testify of God and how he's good and how he's faithful, how he's sovereign, how he's gloriously at work in his son Jesus Christ to accomplish his redemptive purposes, to save sinners like you and me, to make everything new one day. Isn't that the story that we want to hear as we walk this journey? We want to hear the story about what God is doing in Jesus. Paul Tripp writes this, the Bible is a story of redemption and its chief character is Jesus Christ. He is the main theme of the narrative. This story reveals how God harnessed nature and controlled history to send his son to rescue rebellious, foolish, self-focused men and women. The story tells me in a thousand ways that God has made a way to deal with my deepest problem, my sin. It reminds me that my life need not be imprisoned by my own rebellion or defeated by my own foolishness or paralyzed by my own inability. We need to hear that story again and again and again. That our life does not need to be imprisoned or defined by your rebellion. It doesn't need to be def defined by your foolishness. It doesn't need to be de defined by your inability. You don't have to be paralyzed by your inability. It wasn't about your ability in the first place. God chooses the weak things to shame the things that are strong. And so th those are the stories we need to hear. That's the testimony we receive, and that is encouraging. God is doing a work today in you. Jesus Christ is advancing his sovereign cause in the world through you. With boundless power and limitless grace, you have become a part of this grand story. And so you see, we battle unbelief by listening to the testimony of the saints as recorded for us in the pages of Scripture. And there's one message that will come through their story over and over again. Keep looking to Him. Look unto Jesus. End of the day, the greatest weapon we have against unbelief is a fixed gaze upon the person of Jesus Christ. That is really what the whole letter has been moving towards. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Looking unto Jesus. You could say that's the Christian life. J.C. Ryle says it is no exaggeration to say that Christianity is Christ. Christianity is Christ. It's not a religion. It's not a lifestyle. It's not a culture. It's, it's, it's Jesus. Paul says for me to live is Christ. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I think we really need to bring it to mind again that, that what we're called to look to is a person. J.C. Ryle says the object we are to look at is a person, not a doctrine, not an abstract theological dogma, but a living person, and that person is Jesus, the Son of God. Friends, the Christian life is, is it's about a, the person, Jesus. Beneath, behind all the, 
the doctrines, which are all of God and all essential, the point of all that is to help you see the person, Jesus Christ, and to, and to look to Him and know Him and love Him, looking to Jesus. And, and the writer gives us a few very specific things he wants us to see about this Jesus, and, and we'll wrap with that. Notice, he wants us to see in verse 2 who Jesus is. He wants us to see what Jesus has done, and finally, where he is. Who, who he is, and what he did, and where he is. Look unto Jesus, first of all, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That's, who, that's what we need to see about Jesus. And, and we've been through this before, and I'm, I'll probably come back and pull some of this the, the next time we come uh, to Hebrews chapter 12. But the founder means uh, architect, uh, designer and builder, some have said. But the, the key idea is that it's, it's of someone who's a champion, someone who's accomplished a great victory, and in that accomplishment, in that victory, has led others into the result of his conquest. David and Goliath being the great example. When David defeats Goliath, he doesn't um, go for a lunch break. He doesn't, well, that's done, what's next? Uh, what, he, what he does is he leads all of Israel into his victory, and they, and they uh, defeat the Philistines by the power of David's accomplishment. Well, that's what Christ has done, you see. He came in, in, in our place and he fought the great enemy, sin, death, devil, hell. And, and in emerging triumphant, he leads you into the victory. So Paul can say, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You're not just struggling, trying to make your way and trying to make this happen and make this work. You, if you are a Christian looking unto Jesus, you remember that in Jesus, we are, I am, more than conqueror through him who loved me. He is the founder and perfecter of our faith. The work that he's begun, he's going he's to carry on to completion. He himself will confirm and strengthen and establish you as you look to him. Praise God for Jesus. And note what he did, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. There's so much there, and we'll, again, hopefully in weeks to come, unpack more of that. But for the joy set before him, do you know what the joy set before Jesus was? It was the joy of glorifying his Father by redeeming you, the sinner. It was by glorifying his, his God and Father. Father, glorify your name. That's what he prayed, John 17. And, and, and he prayed that on his way to the cross, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be lifted up. Father, glorify your name. Jesus came to glorify the Father by accomplishing God's loving intent to rescue sinners from death and hell and to make them into his adopted children. We're going to be looking at that doctrine tonight, the doctrine of adoption. Encourage you to come and celebrate with us the, the truth of the word and the wonder of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper tonight. That was the joy set before him, and that joy was, was so precious to him. Those things were so real and deep and true and beautiful to him that he goes to the cross despising its shame. It just means that the shame of the cross wasn't enough to make him turn away. But he laid hold of the shame of the cross. He embraced the shame of the cross, willing to be the sacrifice for sin 
But he did not die on that cross as a victim. He died on that cross as a son loving his father and as a warrior defeating his foe. And that's why, as he died, do you remember what he said? To tell us, die. It is finished. It's finished. What was finished? Well, the great work of redemption, God's redemption, the, the, the great work of atoning for sin and propitiating divine wrath, turning aside the wrath of God as Jesus receives that wrath for your sin and my sin, so there's none left for us. It is finished, this great sacrifice necessary to turn the curse backward and make everything new. This is what Jesus has accomplished. Look to him. Look to him. And look where he is now, seated at the right hand of God the Father. That theme shows up throughout the book of Hebrews. The, the, the author continues, remember, this Jesus, our sympathizing high priest, is at the right hand of God. And what is he doing there? He's interceding for you. And he's reigning with all power and authority for you as you walk this pilgrim journey, as you run this race. You have a king, a Lord, who gave his life for you. Now gladly, sovereignly reigning in heaven for you. Well, what can separate you then from the love of God? What could, what could overwhelm you in this journey? Well, nothing can. Not as you look to Jesus. Well, how do you look to Jesus? Friend, it's not a doctrine to be believed. If you just walk out of here and say, boy, I believe that then you haven't caught what the writer is saying. You haven't caught what the Holy Spirit's communicating. Let us, you, me, look to Jesus. It's a practice. It's a habit. It's something we do. And it happens when we gather together in worship service. When we, when we open the word together, you see, we're looking to Jesus. When we celebrate the sacrament together, we're looking to Jesus. When we encourage each other in, in Christian fellowship, we're looking to Jesus together. These are habits to be formed. I know you don't feel like coming to church every Sunday. I don't either. So why do we do it? Because... We're forming holy habits knowing that, believing that. God uses those holy habits to transform us. We just had a wonderful devotional. Drew, Drew McGinnis at our last session meeting talked about the transforming power of holy habits. Moms and dads, why do, you open this, why do you open the Bible at the dinner table? Because you feel like it every time? No, you don't. But, but as you open that word together around the table, you're looking to Jesus and you're leading your children and, and through those holy habits, God is transforming you. Happens in small group Bible studies and fellowship. It happens when you commune with the Lord in bed at night or taking a walk or in the middle of your busy day. You see, it's, it's a lifestyle, friends, of, of actually looking to Jesus. Looking and abiding in Jesus by faith, battling unbelief in faith, living in the pain and the, the heartache of life by faith. And then one day, you see, dying in faith, and waking up to see him face to face. Psalm 17, verse 15. As for me, I shall behold thy face in righteousness, and I shall be satisfied when I awake in thy likeness. Can you imagine that? I shall be satisfied when I awake in thy 
likeness. That's where we're headed. One day the race will be over. One day we'll be home. Until then, let's keep looking to Jesus. Amen. Oh, God in heaven, I thank you so much. You've called us to this race. We don't deserve it. You could have left us running our life on our terms, running towards our eternal doom, never knowing the love and kindness of God in Jesus Christ, and never having this deep hope, this confidence of one day reigning with him and one day seeing him face to face. Father, you know exactly where we live, and I pray that you would take the truth this morning from your word and and drive it deep into our heart. Maybe there are some decisions that need to be made today about what we're giving our time and our mind and heart to. And there need to be a refocus, some new habits formed, some weights that are set aside, a sin of unbelief that needs to be battled. Father, I pray that right now before you, we would make those decisions. And that by your grace, Lord, take steps so that we can see Jesus more clearly by faith and and be looking to him. Father, I, I pray for those who don't maybe know Jesus this morning. I pray that the beauty of this Savior who loved us this way would, would compel them to seek him and seeking him find because Lord Jesus, that's what you promise. Lord, we are we're so dependent and yet you are so gracious and so strong and so faithful and so good. And so looking unto Jesus, the evidence of all those things, we look to you and we wait and we, and we walk until we're finally home. What a day that will be. May it come soon. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond singing together that great.